Welcome to In 20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. Ride the wave of change. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, skepticism, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. With a bachelor's degree in chemistry, Quinn looks for a job. Each company he applies for gives him a test. No companies call him back, and he loses hope. His thick, curly hair is short. Part of his hair is longer in the front, to the side, and at an angle like an off-kilter pompadour. Living in Fresno, his student loan debt isn't getting any smaller, and he doesn't want to move out of his apartment with a gray water system for the shower and sinks. He can't become a data farmer and hope to pay all his bills. He orders some equipment and cooks a batch of pleasant, making his apartment reek of chemicals. Covering his nose with his hand, he paces. Will a neighbor call the cops on him? The next few days, he lives in fear until the smell fades. Next time he cooks a batch, he'll need to rent a shed far away from people. On a Saturday night, with the thousand pills he just made, he heads to a rave. Abandoned buildings tower near a dried-up lake. The cracked ground heats the hundreds who show up near pipelines that cross the lake bed. The pipelines, taller than cargo trains, come out of the ocean and carry salt water to the desert for desalination. Outside an empty Walmart, ravers arrive wearing clothes they won't keep. Attendees of strip raves strip down and allow bots to pat them down before going into the rave where they can pick out paper jumpsuits to wear for the night. They can only keep their links, their glasses, and themselves. Inside, people can dance in a weapon-free zone. Pre-approved people sell drugs inside. Quinn walks up to the strip yard and waves to one of the two bots allowing people to enter. He shouts, Hey, is there a Hume operating that thing? What do I do to get to come inside to sell? He smiles the whole time. The bot continues admitting people, seeming not to hear him. But after a few minutes, it stalls. When it starts moving again, it moves with a gruffer personality walking over to Quinn. With a thick accent, the bot says, no, 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 you can't be asking that. You have to back away from the rope. No way. Leave the area before someone makes you leave. Quinn backs up, waving his hand, says, No problem, I'm going. The crowd surrounds him as he backs away. Back next to the road, he walks back and forth as autocabs drop people off. He uses an app that makes an AR sign saying, Pleasant $3 float above his head. He says, Pleasant. I've got the pure stuff. Few people notice him. A carload of giddy teen femmes glances at him as they get out. One of them bounds up to him and gestures. With a kaching, $12 enter his temp wallet account. She says, four please. Hunched over his open jacket, he counts out four baggies with trembling hands and hands them to her. She grabs them and runs off with her friends. Looking up, he notices a sentry bot standing perfectly still on the other side of the road. You can never tell where bots look unless they're made to make it obvious but that bot more or less faces him. A man with dreads that fizzle and sparkle with light runs straight into the bot, and the bot reacts not at all. Quinn walks down a ways. He makes a few more sales. Before he can get a rhythm going, the ten parked cars leave at the same time. The cars on their way don't stop but continue without dropping anyone off. Passengers look out windows confused as the cars speed them away. People in the crowd laugh and say things like, What's happening? 
Quinn closes his jacket around himself and switches directions, trying to avoid colliding with others. Four cop cars, lights spinning, drive up and park in front of him. Like a wave moving away, the crowd retreats. He stops and looks every which way, waving his hands. This can't be happening. He wants to return to 20 minutes ago and choose differently to avoid all this. Two cop bots step out of cars, flash past him, come up behind him and put him in cuffs. People flee. Some back off and tap their glasses to record. One bot has his wrists. Another guides him by the shoulder, saying, The right to remain silent. Anything you say may... Quinn still hasn't fully recognized what's happening when they sit him down in the back of a cop car and drive away. What's going to happen to all his stuff? He was supposed to call his friend tomorrow. What if one of the companies he applied to calls to offer him a job? They give him five years. When checking him in, they remove his choker link and give him a dayglow anklet link. He sits cuffed to a bench in a hallway when a warden bot approaches him. The bot says, I'll take you to your cell shortly. You have the option of going into stasis during your period of incarceration. Quinn finds it difficult to sit still. His body aches and the environment seems too loud and too bright. He says, Stasis, what's stasis? It says, It's a lot like going into a deep sleep. You won't remember anything. The technique was developed for space travel. He says, For the entire five years? It says, You'll be revived a few weeks before your release. He says, Do I have to choose now? It says you have a month to decide. Aaron sits on a cardboard stool at one of the visiting booths, wearing a t-shirt, dress vest, and bowler hat. He looks boyish and angry. In front of him, the glass-like pane contains transparent metals that block radio waves so visitors can't smuggle data into the prison. On the other side, a door opens and prisoners shuffle out. With a smile, Quinn spots Aaron. The orange jumpsuit makes Quinn look older. Slouching, he sits across from Aaron and says, Hiya! Aaron says, Were you held up? Quinn says, No. How long did you wait? Aaron says, It doesn't matter. Quinn says, I've got some good news. Aaron looks more than surprised and says, Really? Quinn says, I can escape serving time by going into stasis. Aaron freezes, scowls, and says, Wait a minute, what's that? Quinn says, It's what it sounds like. They'll put me to sleep. It's new. Stasis replaced isolated confinement because isolated confinement increased violent behavior. At first, they put prisoners in stasis. For the same amount of time, the prisoners would have gone into isolation, but time in stasis eventually tripled. Then prisoners started fucking up just to get put in stasis. Aaron flinches at the word fucking, which confuses Quinn because sometimes Aaron cusses way too much. With a horrified look, Aaron says, Why would they do that? Quinn says, For one thing, prisoners are safe in sleep chambers. They won't get stabbed or raped. Aaron says, You want to spend five years asleep? Quinn says, If I do, I won't have the experience of five years involved in prison life. That would change me. That would degrade me for the rest of my life. Aaron says, Don't do it. I can't not see you for five years. Quinn ignores feelings of giddiness. He says, But but it's my life. Prison life would harden me. It'd give me all kinds of issues and complexes. But if I go into stasis, I'll still get to be me when I get out. Aaron says, If you care about us, you won't do it. 
Quinn sits quietly for almost a minute. Aaron waves and says, Hello? Quinn says, You're right. Okay. I won't do it. Aaron says, Okay. Newtopia is a virtual world that can only be accessed through a Medusa connection. Instead of starting as a blank canvas of a world, Newtopia is filled with procedurally generated, evolving ecosystems, diverse terrains, and varied weather systems. As one of the massive online worlds with the least users, most of its regions are unclaimed wildernesses. Though users can build in Newtopia, structures follow laws of physics. Unstable structures will collapse. Materials age, so buildings eventually fall into ruin. In Utopia, in a town on the coast of a continent not yet named, Deb Khan, a hacker convention attended by people worldwide, is hosted in an inspiring, curvy-walled, multi-story convention center with many auditoriums, meeting spaces, indoor waterfalls, and giant skylights. Not to mention the beautiful views of the ocean. Quinn attends using his hacker name, Kitchen. His avatar wears a classic chef's outfit, including a tall white hat, apron, and scarf. His avatar's beefy face looks nothing like Quinn's diamond-shaped face. Quinn, or Kitchen, speaks to an audience in an auditorium. He looks out at hundreds, including a hume-sized sperm cell, many ghosts, Robin Hood, red-hooded handmaids, Jinx, and Einstein shirtless, wearing beach shorts. He says, The smallest RF drive is as wide as the hume hair. What you need is an RF drive that can be switched into undetectable mode. Even when switched off, intake scanners detecting microelectronics can find it. One of my cellmates had an RF drive placed right next to a VR dot under the skin of his index finger. AI scanners expect to find microelectronics there. Prisons won't mess with VR dots on inmates because the dots make keeping track of inmates so much easier. My cellmate had a Medusa installer on his RF drive. It was a bare-bones installer that installed just enough to get past firewalls and install the rest of the floating server drivers. I accessed Medusa with an old tablet and did a fresh OS install on it after every use. I put a brick switch on it that I could use if anyone tried to take it away from me, and I did need to hit that switch four times. After Kitchen's presentation, he answers questions. Many stand. When Kitchen points at an avatar who looks like a real person, the Avatar says, I'm Walter Laconte, a reporter with The Link, and I'm hoping to interview you. Kitchen's easy grin turns to a gaping mouth. He says, Sure, anytime. Walter, a grandfatherly character wearing a knitted tie and corduroy, says, After the questions, Kitchen says, Sure. Some people clap. The Link is mainstream tech news. When Kitchen takes the steps off the stage, Walter walks up to him and says, Follow me, I have a meeting room reserved. They make their way through the crowd to a wide hall. Kitchen says, I heard news providers have been muted by SCOTUS. Walter says, They have, we have, but we reporters are still out here finding stories. All my social sites have been paused, but Canada has offered to host the American branch of the link. He points at a door. We're in there. In the room when the door closes, all the crowd sounds go away. Walter says, Do we need a table? Kitchen shakes his head. Walter air gestures, and the table disappears, leaving four chairs. They both sit. Walter sits forward. Kitchen leans back. Walter says, You mentioned the option of going into stasis in prison. Could you pick up where you left off? Kitchen says, After I chose not to take stasis, 
Well, a few weeks after my deadline to choose stasis passed, Aaron broke up with me. I told him, you can't break up with me. I'm experiencing prison life because of you. He said no one should volunteer to sleep for five years anyway. I never heard from him again. Walter says, Did you ever go into stasis in prison? Kitchen says, I did once. They put me in one of those coffins after a lunchroom riot. Everyone got at least a month. Walter says, Would you say putting prisoners in stasis against their will is humane? Kitchen says, It felt like I got a good night's sleep. I had some cuts and bruises from the riot, and it seemed like they healed overnight, but it was because I was out cold for a month. I had one less month to wait to get out. When I heard I was getting stasis, I didn't feel scared. Spacers normalize it. Spacers don't blink when asked to go under for a whole year on their way to the asteroid belt. But if a prisoner kills another prisoner, they can get a year of stasis, and I think that's wrong. You see hardened men cry like babies when they find out they'll be out cold for a whole year. Walter says, Do you wish you had opted for five years in stasis? Kitchen says, Oh, hell no. Prison made me who I am. If I had slept the whole time, I would have come out just as much a fool as the me that got me put in prison in the first place. I got a world-class education in crime of the hacking variety. The prison internet sucks, but with Medusa, I visited some well-known sites that taught beginning-level hacking. I got out early for good behavior, and I couldn't have done that if I had been under. Walter says, People say that crime in America is just as bad, if not worse. Are they right? Kitchen says, Crime is different. DNA sniffers can determine if you walked through a room and offer positive proof. Yet the ratio of drug addiction to total population has doubled. I saw that coming. Give all the jobs to robots, and no surprise drug abuse goes up. If someone dies of an overdose, AI can follow their steps backward using camera footage. They catch thousands of drug dealers that way. Walter says, how do dealers sell now? Kitchen says, mostly zombie dealers sell on the streets. Zombie dealers are addicts themselves. The suppliers place bombs on the zombies, aim cameras at them, and talk to them through canal links. If a zombie flees, the supplier remote detonates the bomb. Sure, police catch the zombies. But the zombies don't have long to live, no matter what. Kitchen leases what used to be an oil chain shop. Outside, trees grow tall where parking lots used to be. The trees cast a lot of shade, which helps fight Fresno's heat. Inside, most of the shop is empty. But large garage doors and open pits in the floor speak of an earlier time that stank of fossil fuel. He paints over the windows, bolts the garage doors, and permanently seals the front entrance. Sitting at his desk between the two rectangular pits, he watches six screens. Using software called Serverscapes, he puts trackers on communications he thinks belong to members of the cartel. The tags zigzag from server to server until they reach their destination. The routes each takes remain on the screens and build up a map of internet usage. The cartel must have their own servers on the U.S. side. They just must. It'd be stupid for them not to have serves U.S. side. Hundreds of tag routes go in and out of a spot in Death Valley. For days, he tries gaining access to the site and can't. He tries gaining access to sites that frequently use that site and can't. A buzzer goes off. His glasses show a hologram view of outside the back door where a pretty boy with pointy ears stands. Assistant says, Ricky is at the door. Should I let him in? Kitchen says, sure. 
Ricky comes in saying, they're trying to shut Medusa down. Kitchen swivels around and says, the Christian Supreme Court. Ricky says, who else? Kitchen's forehead wrinkles. He says, they'll have to smash every connected device. Ricky's dimples never seem to go away. He says, I've got a few more tags for you. Kitchen swivels back to his screens and says, great, send them to me. Ricky walks up behind him and says, have you gotten into that server yet? Kitchen says, not yet, they're kicking my butt. Ricky says, are you going to do a physical intrusion like you did on the last job? Kitchen exhales a laugh and says, heck no, the cartel has military-grade security. I'm not about to get shot to pieces by a swarm of drones. Ricky says, ever hear of Paper Moon? Kitchen says, what's that? Ricky says, she is a thief. She rips off dealers, but she never attacks them directly. She finds where they keep their stash and steals the cash cards out from under them. So she climbs through windows, cuts holes through fences, and sends in decoys. She was a preteen when she started. Her targets are small-time, and she doesn't strike that often. But she isn't small-time. She's killed. You do not want to corner her. Kitchen says, she's strictly boots on the ground. Ricky says, all the time, every time. Kitchen swivels to face Ricky, raises one eyebrow, and chews his lip as he thinks it over. Beth rents a rig studio. The one rectangular room has no windows. The toilet inside the shower booth and kitchenette take up one side and the rig takes up the other side. When she sleeps, she uses an air mattress. It deflates down to the size of a pillow and takes on second to inflate or deflate. Rigs have gotten lighter and the base of Beth's rig is bolted to beams under the floor. Its robot arms can come together, but it still dominates the space. The building she lives in houses 200 rig studios. The bigger, more expensive studios have windows, but most don't. Other occupants hang curtain hologram screens that give them views, but Beth has never bothered decorating much. The room is perfectly soundproof, and the silence can produce a feeling of dread. She thought she'd like the silence when she first moved in, but it only took two days before she ordered a clock that produces rain sounds. In the shape of a teardrop, the clock shines a hologram time display above it. Beth, now 18, is strapped into the rig. The robot arms help her sit, walk, and run in full immersion. People who rent rig studios live in VR worlds more so than IRL. Her long, skinny nose sticks out from her headset. Muscles flex on her pointed jawline. In VR, she's a male, middle-aged sheriff in The Aliens Have Landed, an open world where aliens disguised as humes make up 30% of the population. She must discover who the aliens are. She also can't raise suspicions that she knows some humes are aliens. It's hard to figure out who's who. As the sheriff in a small town, she answers 9-11 calls and gets to know people in the town pretty well. Is the femme who works in the donut shop an alien? Is the boy next door who shoots baskets in the drive? Is he an alien? She walks down Main Street. Two high school boys walk toward the malt shop. She can't go up and ask them if they're aliens. If they are, she could get abducted. She walks into the post office. The femme at the counter looks up and waits. The femme has a different hairdo from the last time. Her name tag is a little crooked this time. She must have a dog because short, straight blonde hairs cling to her shirt. Behind the counter, a toddler in diapers sits on the floor playing with blocks. The femme follows Beth's gaze and smiles sheepishly. Beth says, 
I got a call from Indianapolis that an escapee may be in the area. See anything unusual today? The femme says, No, sir, I haven't, except I did see a truck this morning that seemed off. Is it Beth's imagination, or does the femme seem nervous? Beth says, How so? The femme says it drove real slow and its engine sounded strange. Beth says, Is that all? The femme says, It drove right past me and I saw two men in the front, but I couldn't see their faces. They weren't wearing masks or anything. I just couldn't see their faces. Beth says, Anything else? The femme says, That's all. Beth says, Well, don't talk to anyone about that. You know how people get all worked up over nothing. The femme nods. Beth steps outside. The postal worker must be Hume for now. She may be replaced by an alien later. The radio on Beth's hip crackles, and June, the 9-11 operator, says, Tommy, we have a jackknife on Highway 34, past the mill. Beth presses the talk button and says, Copy, I'm on my way. June is young and single, yet Beth never sees her around town on her time off. That's strange, isn't it? As Beth walks toward her cop car, a femme wearing a post-war dress with a diving neckline walks out of the beauty salon and waves Beth over. Beth says, ma'am. The femme says, don't go in there. She points at the salon. They're talking all kinds of nonsense. June on the radio says, Tommy, hurry over there. There are injuries and one is a child. Beth says, on my way, June. The salon femme squints at Beth and says, sounds like you gotta go. What she likes about this game is, it isn't a role-playing game, not at all. The characters live out their lives whether she interacts with them or not. The aliens also fully play their roles in an advanced simulation. So she isn't marching through RPG script. She has to suss out who the Humes are and who the aliens are. There's also a hidden ship somewhere, or so she's heard there is. She hasn't found it yet. She gets in the 71 Impala, switches on the sirens, and speeds toward Highway 34. As evening approaches IRL, she pulls her headset off, pulls her hands out of the haptic gloves at the ends of robot arms, unstraps from the central harness, and pulls her feet out of the haptic shoes also connected to robot arms. She climbs down in dresses and loose clothes of somber colors. She puts on her AR glasses and dons a privacy hat. The hat's brim circles her head, and fabric hangs from the brim down to her shoulders. Cameras around the outside capture 3D video that plays on the inside of the fabric. She can still see the world around her, though her head is completely covered. Taking her bike, which leans against the wall, she leaves her studio. Intermixed sounds saturate the hall, a distant rumble, a muffled peal of laughter, and the clacking of wheels over tile. The elevator wouldn't be out of place in a storage facility. Its unfinished floor can handle heavy pallet jacks, and nothing has been done about the scuffs on the walls. She says, Take me to the first floor. The doors slide closed on loose tracks, and the elevator jerks before it drops. The heat hits her when she exits onto the street. The heat in Fresno ain't no joke even with the inverse greenhouse fabrics she wears that reflect outside light and allow infrared light from her to pass into the environment. She bikes a block to the firebreak. The firebreak is a walled-off clearing that circles the city, Fresno cleared buildings in a great loop around the city. They built two walls a lot's distance apart that cut through neighborhoods. The land between the walls is cleared of plant growth 24-7 by robots. Openings in the walls allow streets and paths through. 
Cars can't drive down the clear zone, but bikes and pedestrians travel down it all the time. A well-worn path down the middle is the fastest way she can take to the flea market. Graffiti covers the walls, and as she rides, she likes to look ahead and watch the graffiti pass her on either side, using her peripheral vision. Twice, she rides under giant pipes that pump water from the ocean to Death Valley desalination plants. In most cases, the elevated pipes held up by truss supports pass high over the roads. In a vacant lot, people keep watch over tables and racks. They sell refurbished fancy wear-once clothes, potted plants, collector items, produce, portable water filtration, sun-dried foods, tamales, little robo-birds, viral dance lessons, knife sharpening, and much more. They've been here all day, and most look like they're ready to pack it up for the day. She uses an app to place an AR sign above her that reads, Cash Card for Sale, and walks the perimeter. Within minutes, a raggedy, junky dude runs up to her and gestures to drop $5 in her open temp wallet app. She holds the card outside the fold of her poncho shirt. He grabs it and runs off with wide steps. No one's ever tried to mug her out here, not during the day in a public gathering. Cop AI watch cameras and have learned to spot muggings. When a cop bot approached her and asked where she got the cards from, she said she got them for cleaning someone's place, which is kind of true. She cleaned a drug dealer's stash spot of their cash cards. The bot hesitated, then walked away. After she sells two more cards and only has three left on her, Travis, a sometimes partner in crime, walks up to her. The tight pants he wears just make him look scrawny. She wishes tight pants on guys would go back out of style. His eyes look sleepier every time she sees him. He says, She emerges. I heard you disappeared into Gamer's Paradise. She says, You can recognize me with this thing over my head? He says, You're the only one who doesn't capitalize cash card for sale. She says, Uh, you got me. He says, So I know someone who needs your expertise. She rears back and says, I don't have expertise. He says, Sister, you got to recognize your potential. I'm in deeper than you, and I've never had the stomach to do what you do. She says, is that like a passive-aggressive insult? He waves his hands and says, no, no, not at all. I'm saying you could get more on a job. If you make one big score, you can do nothing but game for a few years. She says, you setting me up again? The smile drops off his face, and he says, I was as surprised as you. There's a reason I thought of you. You'll like this. The guy who needs your help wants to rip off the cartel. Beth, a.k.a. Paper Moon, sits in Kitchen's hacker space facing him. They've been speaking for a few hours. He says, You have regular VR dots. The problem is anyone can track your VR dots. Security systems and robots use dots to see people. Have you heard of Buzzsaw? She holds a small espresso cup watching him with a poker face. She says, No. He says, Well, he's an amazing programmer and he reverse-engineered VR dots. If we fit you with the dots he designed... You can use an app to turn them on and off, or set them so only your link can see them. It won't make you invisible to cameras, heat sensors, and other inputs, but it'll make you a lot less visible to most automation. She says, So you need to dig the chips out from under my skin? He says, Yes, and inject you with the buzzsaw variety. She watches him and nods slowly. The next day, Kitchen and Paper Moon sit in front of his monitors, 
He says, This is a flyover in Death Valley. She says, Those are the desalination buildings. He says, Yes. Mile after mile of big box buildings all have transparent roofs. Inside, salt water is sprayed on the floors. Sunlight evaporates the water which collects on the underside of the roofs and runs off into catchment lines. Robots vacuum the remaining salt and minerals, and the process repeats. These plants supply a third of America's drinkable water. A group of four smaller buildings from an earlier era sit deep in desalination territory. The old brick buildings are a house, a bank, a utilities building, and an office building. The flyover circles the four buildings. He says, The server is in that bank. We've been watching it for weeks, and no one visits it except a private security bot that patrols all four buildings once a week on average. Her eyes dart, picking up many details out of the footage. He fidgets constantly, but she remains still unless she moves for a purpose. All commercial Atono taxis stream video of the front view, rear view, and passenger view. Police AI watch these streams, and police can rewind save streams to investigate a crime after the fact. At night, Paper Moon takes Kitchen's Autono car to Death Valley. His car looks exactly like a commercial Autono taxi, but it isn't streaming, and it doesn't have a commercial tracker tag. She rides deep into the land of desalination building after desalination building. Wind blows fine salt across the streets, and it settles against buildings. The salt has been in the oceans for thousands of years, and now it goes toward making backyard batteries the size of sheds. Minerals mixed with the salt go into the latest canal links. She says, Assistant, half outside noise. The sprayers and vacuum arms make hellish noises, gushing shrieks that last for minutes and low groaning. Her link drops the volume. Pipes as wide as city buses follow all the roads. Drinkable water has as much influence over global economics as crude oil used to have. Wind turbines tower over the buildings. Their great blades move slowly and there must be hundreds of them out here. The desert is rich in sunlight and wind. Cabless water trucks come and go. During her 30-minute drive into the heart of Salt Valley, she hasn't seen a single Hume. Not only that, she knows the number of Humes in the 100-mile radius can be counted on one hand. It may seem like life is here, but it's just machines. Kitchen's car stops on a dark street on a spot where no cameras stream. She jumps out, and the car leaves. The building on her left was a tools distribution center before being turned into an evaporation house. She climbs up into a defunct loading bay. Taking pieces out of her bag, she assembles a sniper rifle and checks its handling. Moving to the ledge, she aims it down the street at the four brick buildings that aren't used for desalination. Aiming at the front of the bank through the scope, she watches a lizard climb on the wall near the door. She props the rifle against a rolling garage door that hasn't opened for decades, unrolls a sleeping bag with cooling tech, and sits on top of it. Switching her AR glasses to headset mode, she logs into The Aliens Have Landed. Assistant says, Beth, you aren't in your rig. Would you like to use air keyboard or hand signs to control your avatar? Paper Moon says, Hand signs and foot control. It gets late. She takes off her glasses and stands to stretch her legs. She looks up at the stars and gasps. Holy hell, she hasn't seen the stars like this since her childhood in Oregon woods. The points of light that move are satellites and space stations. She opens a can of baker's stew and eats it cold. Her water canister uses solar to charge its battery, and the water tastes nice and cold. 
The can and spoon go in the trash bag in her canvas bag. It sure does help that her glasses give her limited night vision. She wouldn't be able to see much without them. When she gets inside her sleeping bag, it cools her off and pulls the sweat off her skin. An unfamiliar male voice wakes her. He says, It's here. Paper Moon, it's on its way. Oh yeah, it's kitchen. Already halfway out of the sleeping bag, she says, I'm on it. Excitement hormones clash with sleep hormones until excitement wins. She grabs the rifle and sets it up on a small tripod on the ledge of the loading dock. Lifting her glasses and resting them on top of her head, she fits her eye to the scope. The light through the scope overpowers her vision until her eye adjusts. Through the scope, the sidewalk in front of the bank looks bathed in sunlight. The robot security guard walks down the sidewalk. Her neck muscles tense. Kitchen says, Wait until it comes out. You want to get it on its back. She says, Copy. The robot turns and disappears through the bank entrance. He says, Copy? What, are we on the radio? She says, It's something my dad used to say. He says, I wasn't expecting a story about your childhood. I was told you're a hardened thief. She watches the bank door. Minutes go by. He says, I'm picking up movement. The bot steps out on the sidewalk. Beth feels seconds stretching as she moves the crosshairs over, down. The back of the robot fills her view. She pulls the trigger and counter-reacts to the rifle jumping. With the silencer, the gun makes a hard spitting sound. Half a second later, the bot tips forward and rights itself before turning into the entry recess of the next building. She says, did I get it? He says, hold on. She shifts around and adjusts her position. He says, yes, you got it. Good job. The car arrives. Once she's gotten inside with her bag and the car is moving, Kitchen says, The relay projectile is firmly stuck on the bot's back. Now I can monitor all the signals the bot sends and receives. I'll let you know when I've gotten something. I don't know how many days or weeks it may take, so it's late, so thanks for your help and we'll talk soon. She rubs her neck, tries to get comfortable in the seat, and says, Good night. She takes her glasses off and rolls down all the windows. A week ago, a medical hacker plucked all the VR dots out from under her skin and injected reverse-engineered replacements. All the points leave sore spots all over that she stops herself from rubbing. She says, Assistant, switch my VR dots to default mode. Assistant says, Done, your VR dots are now public. Kitchen advised her to leave them on for anyone to read most of the time because an AI may see her with a camera, think she doesn't have VR dots, and throw up an alert. If she and Ketchin do manage to rip off the cartel, she'll be rich. Crooks are the best people to rob from because they live outside the law, he said. When was the last time a Hume rode down the street? She's seen videos of the evaporation floors coated in salt and minerals after the sunlight sucked all the water away. She thinks of tiny diamonds, beach sand, dry skin, and bathtub residue. Out here, she could pretend she's the last person on Earth. How long could she do that? The Hermit of Salt Valley. Tonight we speak with a femme who's lived for 10 years without Hume contact in the middle of the largest industrial park known as Salt Valley. The relay that Paper Moon shot at the bot stuck on its back in a gummy substance. The next time the bot steps up to the bank entrance, it sends out a radio key code to gain entry. The relay picks up that code. Kitchen knows of three cameras that watch the bank entrance. 
Two belong to State Streets and one belongs to a drinkable water company across the street. Over many days, so as not to get noticed, he changes the zoom, pan, and tilt on the cameras to minimize how well they can see the bank entrance area. A few nights later, Paper Moon rides out to Salt Valley a second time. Besides having the entry code, she has codes that'll tell the canine sentry bots inside that she's nothing but a friendly security guard bot and they can leave her alone. She wraps tape around her hands and practices throwing punches until sweat makes her face shiny. When the car stops in front of the bank, she jumps out and dashes to the entrance. She wears a hijab and a hard mask that covers her face. The mask comes with AR capabilities. She wears gloves, and under her clothes, she wears a full-body membrane that keeps any of her DNA from falling off her. Her AR shows an app for the door code. She taps it, and the door unlatches. Her VR dots are set to imitate the security bot, and the I'm safe codes are set to respond to canine bot pings. Inside, the lobby is lit by moonlight through the tall, dirty windows. Sea salt dust as thick as a cash card covers everything. A counter for writing checks is tipped over in the center of the lobby. Some papers lay scattered on the stone floor. She steps on the tracks the patrol bot left in the dust. A canine sentry bot walks out from behind the teller counter and aims a camera at her. Cameras in high corners watch her. They say the chance of a Hume watching you through a cam is as likely as getting struck by lightning, but AI watch all the time. The AI see, but they don't see. If you avoid all their reasons for marking you as out of place, you remain unnoticed. She repeats to herself, I'm already dead, I'm already dead, and this gives her a focused calm. The canine silently walks across the room and climbs a staircase. It, too, is coated with salt dust. She approaches the middle of the room. Corporate-style chandeliers hang from the ceiling. Behind the teller counter in a wide recess, the massive door to the safe stands half open. Kitchen sees what she sees through a cam in her mask. He says, it's not in the safe. I'm picking up a lot of electromagnetic activity on the second floor. Noticing Hume footprints, many of them, leading to and from the vault. She walks toward the vault. Kitchen says, Don't waste time. You're there within the window of when the patrol bot patrols the bank. The guard bot may come at any time. She walks behind the counter, into the recess, and steps around the safe door. The door is thicker than she is, and its metal-era parts show rust and corrosion. Her mask switches on night vision and the vault interior appears to light up. Surrounded by walls of tiny safe doors, a brand new protein computer rises from thick tangles of cables crossing the floor. Even Paper Moon knows the single rack has hundreds of times more computing power than silicon computers. Kitchen says, holy crap, that's a Kurzweil. Outside the vault, the footsteps of two canine bots make soft tapping sounds. Paper Moon steps around the cabinet to where hundreds of cables plugged into ports rope down to the floor. She takes out the drop box that looks like an Ethernet plug with a port on the back end. It has its own computer running Linux and its own cell service. She opens the glass door. He says, Any connection on the far left should work. Her hand wavers over one of the cables. He says, Go ahead, that'll be fine. She pulls out a cable, plugs the drop box in its place, and plugs the cable into the port on the drop box. The cable sticks out a couple of more inches than it did before. He says, hold on, hold on. She steps back. Her hands are shaking, but she feels fine. He says, it worked, I have access. You can go, go. She carefully closes the glass door and follows the most walked on trail through the dust, out of the vault, around the counter, 
and across the lobby. Four canine bots walk around the lobby. One stands between her and the main entrance. She fights the urge to run up to it and shove it out of the way. She slows and stands. The bots march around almost in time with each other. The bot by the door steps to turn around. It faces her. As soon as if walks away from the door, she advances, passes it, and pushes the door open. The hot air hits her. She bolts to the waiting car. Sitting and closing the car door, she says, Go! The car takes off. She pulls the mask off, pulls off the hijab, and tears the membrane off her head. Her sweat makes the air feel cool. Now with the sight of the buildings passing, dread overpowers her. Her composure crumbles, and she shuts her eyes and hugs herself to stop from trembling. She and Kitchen break contact. She moves to another rig studio on the other side of town. Reluctant to leave VR for the real world before, now she goes weeks without stepping out of her apartment. She watches tubes about the cartel. They're well-established in most towns and cities. Rural areas aren't exempt. The cartel set up smuggling routes that go through tiny towns. The videos show hot rods parked outside shack houses on dirt roads. They show drones flying over rooftops as FM says, What are those? A cracking male voice says, Those belong to the cartel, man. In the fall, Paper Moon gets a message to meet with Kitchen in a Medusa VR meet space. She chooses the first avatar at the top of the list, a generic office femme. The meeting room could hold 20 avatars, but only one portly man wearing a cartoonish chef's hat waits for her. In a voice she doesn't recognize, he says, Hey, it's Kitchen. How are you? She says, Fine, and is surprised when her voice sounds like that one character in that one comedy about office life. He says, Good, well, it worked. I managed to divert some of the cartel's money laundering, she says. Wow, you did it. An achy, ticklish feeling turns in her stomach. He says, Unless you have a truck to pick up all the cash cards it'd take to pay you, we need to find discreet ways that I can give you your cut. You don't own a business, do you? She says, no. He says, well, we can work on it. Um, stop me if I'm crossing a line, but I discovered that you were in that prepper camp that got taken over by the Tucker group during the media attack. He may as well have dumped a bucket of ice water on her. She feels her blood turn cold. She turns from him and looks down. He says, sorry, I shouldn't have. She says, no, I mean, yes, that was me. He says, see, I was wondering why you only target criminals. You know, if you ever wanted to do something about what happened, I can help. She says, how? He says, most of those members are still alive. I don't know if knew that. She says, I didn't. He says, I'm just saying, if you needed to find anyone, I'd be happy to help. Thank you for listening. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is in 20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.